Hello, and welcome to the You're an Asset podcast. I'm your host, Casey the Dollar. And on this podcast, we find out who is an asset in the financial industry and who is just an ass. It is. The BMIs are stupid. On today's episode, I have a very special guest. He is back for a second time. We are so honored to have him back. And I'm bringing this person back onto the show because we're going to have a extremely meaningful conversation that is not only important to your finances, it's important to society, it's important to our livelihood. World events, world news affects us on a daily basis. It affects everything that we do. If you don't think that what's going on in the world affects your money and what you should be doing with your money, think again. And without further ado, I'm just going to bring him on in here. Please welcome my friend, Justice. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for inviting me back on this platform. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, Casey, and the rest of your community. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you. It's it's exciting and it's, it's tiring. I'm you know at the same time it's like yes I'm mm-hmm. I'm so excited to have you here and how lucky are we that we get to sit here and do a podcast with everything else that's going on um in the world. Not only are world events happening that we want to talk about, but also it's Black History Month, right? Yes. So I thank you again so much for being here to to be a voice um for the community and to bring a voice and uh, perspective to to my listeners um, and my and my followers on social media. It's a privilege. Without Black History Month, there there is no American history. The BIPOC community is the backbone of America. And I would love to just have your perspective on who is being celebrated exactly and why more people should pay attention. Well, you know, first, it's the shortest month <laughs> in the year, Shame. right? So, uh, you know, that's de- that's definitely deliberate. Um, but I also want to say Black History Month is not just singular to February. Um, Black History Month is every month. Um, Black History Month is what founded um, these American ideals that our four founders wanted to bring toward the rest of uh, the citizenship of America, mm-hmm. which is um, equal. Everybody has equality. Everybody is equal. Um, and everybody has the sense of liberty, right? Um, and I know within the last three years, different industry leaders have actually changed the term to Black Futures Month, which mm-hmm. I think is very um, particular and, and it's fitting to what uh, the American um, curriculum and education wants to teach us about Black history. That it's mostly about slavery, mostly about how we were all, when I say we Black folks, um, that we were just, um, I would say, um, individuals that didn't have no pursuits, right? And that uh, we have just two uh, influential leaders that um, bring us joy which is MLK and Malcolm X, (laughs) which is way more than that. Black history is way more than slavery. Black history is way more than MLK. Black history is way more than Malcolm X. Um, Black history is vast, expansive. It's not only encompassing America, but it's worldwide. 
like James Baldwin, like Marcus Garvey, like Nelson Mandela. These are individuals that are not just particular to America. These are Black influential beings worldwide. Yeah. So what I try to do, uh, and also with my team, what we try to do at OC Justice Initiative, our nonprofit, is um, educate individuals on how Black history is not just particularly um, targeted for February or just in America, but there's different individuals worldwide that have contributed to history um, that we should highlight and that we should uh, uplift and we should amplify, not just um, this month, but every day, because um, we are building off their contributions, you know. And, um, you know, I feel like MLK gets, he gets used and abused by yeah. people. Often, right? Often, and it's become yes. it's more and more apparent every single year that more yeah. atrocities are happening across the world that you see people who are full of hate trying to hold up MLK in this in this way to confirm their beliefs. It's wild. And you had mentioned to me that there, you know, like there are people people in the, the BIPOC community, right? That that they don't even realize their roots of of where they came from or, or could you expand on, on what you meant by this? Right. Um, you know, there was a past revolutionary. Um, his name was uh, Stokely Carmichael, um, but um, his actual God-given name was Kwame Tori. Mm-hmm. And he was the leader of SNCC. Um, SNCC was a, a student, a students for nonviolent organization um, that started in the midst of the 1960s. And they were really huge in bringing forth a lot of revolutionary acts within the 1960s that yeah. get overshadowed by MOK and Malcolm X. But SNCC was a really great organization that worked alongside the Black Panther Party and other mm. revolutionary, I would say, organizations and individuals. What I've learned from Stokely Carmichael is that you know, as Black folk, we must know who we are as individuals that have shaped society. Uh, we must know our ancestry and, and, and who we are and where we come from. We are not just Black Americans, but we're Black folks in America, right? Yeah. It's a, a distinction. And I think so many um, individuals that I meet um, in my passings within this movement or even within the corporate sector, they usually don't know who they are. They, they know that they come from a family line. They know that they're, you know, brothers and sisters that may have been predecessors or may have some ancestry in slavery, but they don't know exactly the lineage of their ancestry and how far it goes back and what contributed to their ancestry or their uh, the, the the elongated history of their ancestry. And for me, when I was 16, I had this project that I did in high school where I, uh, I took it upon myself <laughs> to learn my ancestry. This is way before 23andMe and all these apps that you could use to tra- track your DNA. This is yeah, way yeah. before that. This is, I think the only thing at that time was Ancestry.com. And I use that to really go deep and and track my ancestry, where my roots originated from. And what I found is that I have 
a long history of Moorish ancestors, uh, and the Moors originated from, I would say, northern part of Africa, but then they migrated to Italy, um, and they were ruling Italy and, and, and different parts of Italy for a while. Yeah. Um, and they weren't you know, slaves, right? They were they were royal. They were kings. They were queens. Um, and I learned that most of my you know past ancestry and my last name crewed up his French. But it was also given to a lot of Moors at the time in Italy. And I learned that young. And mm. you have no idea how empowering that was to know my royal bloodline at a, such a young age. So then that basically motivated me and, 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 made, and empowered me to not just look at myself as a African-American or a Black American and put myself in a box of what Black Americans are in America. It, yeah. it, it motivated me to say I am more than that. I'm royal. Uh, my people are royal. And if we educated ourselves just a little bit more yeah. on our ancestry, I think it can change a lot of the mental suffering that we as Black folks go through in America. And that's amazing. Like what kind of an incredible inspiration of for a young person to be like, my ancestors were royals. Yeah. And what right. are we being taught? Like being taught the complete opposite. And the, the, mm -hmm. what we're being taught, like as a young person, that makes you feel bad. Of course. Makes you feel bad, right? And so to have that 360, I mean, that's that's amazing. I'm, I'm so glad that you did that for yourself. They should be teaching that in school. Yes. Right? 100%. They should. I mean, it makes me think about the the woman I told you that I, I had researched. and I, I was looking up, you know, famous black women in history. And if you had asked me like, who was the first female millionaire, like self-made millionaire, <laughs> I would have been like probably some white woman, right? Like, yeah, some white yeah. woman, of, of course. No, Madam CJ Walker, first self-made millionaire, right. um, first female self-made millionaire. I, this blew my mind. I'm ashamed, of course, that that blew my mind. <laughs> not, because, not because she's black, but because I didn't know and I wouldn't have thought about it, right? Mm -hmm. And how inspiring would that be for young girls to learn that the first woman to become a self-made millionaire is a black woman? Yes. Like, that's incredible. I love this. And, and, uh, you know, and a lot of people don't really make the effort to know these facts. Right. And I think it's because it's so buried under all of this other media that they want to distract us with, mm -hmm. whether it be police brutality, whether it be reality, reality shows that, depict black women and black men always fighting, whether it be music, right? That depicts black women as baby mamas and black and black fathers as fatherless, whether it be movies, right? So, yeah. we, so those are four instances where these things distract the next generation to really dig deep and mm -hmm. find this information like you just uh, stated. And it feels like it's always like a, it's always like a, uh, it can't just be a story, like you're saying, like that your ancestors were royals. They were, they right. were royal, a royal family in Italy, right? It's always, oh no, they had to fight really hard to get to where they are at now. And they had to break all of these generational chains. Like that's the story that we hear. It's not, exactly. no, they were just royal people living a normal royal life, right? Or no, she just worked really hard and, yeah. you know, was very successful. It's always, no, they had to 
fight against oppression. They had to overcome being poor. They had to overcome lack of education. Like, that's the story that's told. It's always the story of slavery and yeah. and houselessness, homelessness, lack of education. And like, oh, wow. And then he made him made something of himself. Like, exactly. it, it wasn't always like this. We weren't born into, you know, this world where black and white people were not the same, you know, not to not to jump away from from the topic. But it's just like the idea that most people don't know that in Palestine, there are Palestinian Jews, Christians, and Muslims. It's not just there's mm -hmm. you know Arab Palestinians. It's there was right. white Palestinians, brown Palestinians, black Palestinians, and they were all living in harmony. They were all good. It, but instead, we're taught like no, there was always division. You know, it's it's this story they want us to believe that no, there's yeah. always a bad side and a good side. There was never harmony. Couldn't be. You know, separatism is the most I would say used strategy for imperialistic dynasties um, around the world and it's it's been used for generations just separating um, different types of um, religions separating based on a social construct such as race mm -hmm. um, separating based on you know ethnicities separating based on wealth and America uses it um, the best when they separate us and they try to you know, say this is this month is black history. This month is Asian history. This month is going to be for, you know, Latin and this month and every other month. We're, we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then and then they separate us in different religious silos, like you stated. Mm -hmm. And this is used by not only America, but by the state of Israel, which are our partners in imperialism and colonialization. Yeah. Um, it's also used by the UK. When I was traveling out there actually to the UK, I was really awestruck on how they separated so many individuals by wealth and, and, and socioeconomic class. These dynasties of imperialism always use individualism and separatism. And what I try to do with when, whenever movement I go into is educate people on collectivism and how unity is so important because they always want to separate us and individualize our struggles to make us feel like we're just alone. And that's how they break up all of our progress. Yeah. If we don't really realize that we are all connected, like you stated, like we're not yeah. all separate, you know? I learned a bit more about the philosophies of MLK recently. Mm. And I didn't know that when he was making speeches and he was talking to the public in his time, he would say that if the low income and poor black and white people would mm. just work together. Right. And when they, when they came together and when they unified and when, when they united, right, that yeah. they would change the world. And we, we picture MLK as like someone who was speaking on behalf of, of people of color, but he wasn't just speaking on behalf of people of color. He was saying when the right. low income, poor white people unite with the low income, poor black people, yeah. they are going to create major change. Right. And yes. I didn't know that the, that he was speaking on behalf of white people because we know that yeah. white people are poor and, and mm -hmm. low income. Right. 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 Um, to learn that he was, 
he was speaking on behalf of everybody. He wasn't just saying, you know, I'm fighting for people of color, for my people. He was recognizing that we needed to unite. And so it's just, I mean, it's it's sad, again, that this message has been ignored for so long. Yeah. You know, it, it was very obvious to someone like MLK, like the we can't we can't do anything without each other, right? No. And people are still not bringing that part of the, of his messaging to society that it's yet to happen. Still, we're still yes. fighting for unity. Yes, you know, uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because what MLK spoke about was uniting poor white Americans mm-hmm. and poor Black Americans together, and the and I think the struggles between collectivism and individualism kind of evaporated during the 1960s because not only did you have MLK saying that you had the Black Panther Party bringing poor whites, poor Asians together. Right. And that was big at the time. You did not, you didn't see that. Right. Um, You had um, Angela Y. Davis along with other individuals um, speaking about poor white women and poor black women coming together to take care of babies who were being neglected during this time. That was unheard of. And you also had Japanese Americans speaking about the internment camps that they were under during uh, the war against Japan, quote unquote, and how that was interconnected between the struggles of black Americans. And that was unheard of. Um, So it's always been somewhat of a, a shaky territory when black individuals try to uh, educate white Americans on the interconnectedness because some white Americans think that I have no idea how it feels to be black. <laughs> so like, I am not even going to sit here and try to be, be educated because I have no idea how it feels to be black. And that's, that's a facet of white fragility where you just, you get uncomfortable because you don't know how it feels to be in our shoes. So you kind of disassociate. But what I beg for my white brothers and sisters is that, you know, be okay with being uncomfortable. It's okay. You can be uncomfortable in a situation where you need to be educated. After your feeling of uncomfortableness, I will implore you to then reach out to a BIPOC person and say, hey, I'm educated. What, what else can I do for this movement? You know, instead of just sitting back and feeling like, you know, you did all the work, there's more work you could do. With everything that's going on um, in the world right now, it has never been so apparent how hard our higher ups and our officials are, are trying to distract everyone from the atrocities happening all over the world with, no. with things like the Super Bowl. The internet is trying to push it on people that don't want it even. Yes. Like they're just, please, please pay attention to this. Please pay attention to this. Please, I'm begging you <laughs> to pay attention <laughs> to the Super Bowl and Taylor Swift. Like oh I'll God. do anything <laughs> for you to post about Taylor Swift and to care about this more than you care about uh, Black History Month, more than you care about what's happening right. in Gaza, anything. Because um, there were so many other events that happen during the Super Bowl that, you know, people are, are, their lives are being taken away. And as far as Black History Month and and people of color who made a name for themselves, created generational wealth for their family who have, you know, received status and power, I want to bring up some wild things that happened during the Super Bowl. 
that are not mm. being talked about. And not only did Israel incite a huge attack on on Rafa um, and the people of Palestine and kill hundreds and hundreds of Palestinians, innocent civilians in Palestine. But Nigerian CEOs were killed in a is a mm -hmm. helicopter crash. Right. And I know that you and your team did a lot of research on what happened. Do you mind shedding light on and what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of Taylor Swift propaganda a lot of ice spice propaganda, um, <laughs> but it was also a really significant day of um, mourning um, mm -hmm. for our brothers and sisters in Palestine and also for some of our Nigerian brothers and sisters who got the helicopter crashed, right? Yeah. So I don't want to make false accusations here, but I mean, it, 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 it speaks to foul play. One of the CEOs of Nigeria's largest banks was killed the same night with his wife and his son, um, the same night that the Super Bowl was happening. So they were the chief executive of Access Bank. The former pilot, excuse me, the former CEO of NGX Group was also on this helicopter. And um, the NGX Group is a investment group in Nigeria, one of the largest investment groups in Nigeria. Um, so these two individuals, were really, really powerful people within Nigeria, and they were changing the economy and within Africa, within the continent of Africa, to not be as reliant on the U.S. dollar. Because, Casey, as you and I know, um, since we're on a financial platform, yeah. uh, the U.S. dollar is decreasing and it's not becoming as viable anymore. And America does not like that. So if there's any continent or any countries that are trying to move away from the U.S. dollar and empower themselves, it is considered a threat. So my correlation or assumption is that there are some people within the U.S. Um, who are also interconnected within the financial industry. They're not like that. And they got word of them coming to the U.S. and wanted to uh, possibly show a sign that actually went wrong. <laughs> maybe they wanted to take them off course. And that's our assumption, right? So that's that's something that I think um, a lot of Americans don't want to really deep dive into because they will start to realize that their American dollar, that they're holding and that they're spending and that they're uh, saving is not as viable no more. Um, but as we see Russia, as we see Africa, as we see different types of countries in Africa and China and the UAE come together to make new forms of currency, to make new alliances, America is becoming very, 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 very scared about that. Yeah. And then along with the Super Bowl, oh my God, I mean, this, so many things. So Casey, I don't watch NFL no more. I stopped watching NFL in 2018 because our watch time is connected to our tax dollars. Because as you were watching the NFL and the exploitation of black people and the exploitation of Usher and black culture, mm -hmm. right? Then you had your tax dollars go over to Israel to bomb black and brown children. Mm-hmm. But, but people don't want to connect that. They think it's separate when it's all together. And I heard that there was a, a commercial even in the Super Bowl. Yeah. 
about getting the hostages back from Hamas and that we need to end Hamas. And you know that there are people watching the Super Bowl, right, who have never, they don't have any idea what's going on. Uh, I mean, as we could go on. We could go we on got- forever. But I mean, so the dollar's been losing value for a long time now, and people still mm. don't know about it. That was one of the reasons that I, when I learned about cash value life insurance, that it was like, holy shit, like, why are we not educating people on how to take advantage of good debt because our entire system runs on debt. It is all debt. And so if you are not on an individual level taking advantage of debt, you're the person getting poorer and poorer and poorer because your money means nothing. And if you don't have anything to leverage, it doesn't matter. Like you're you're on a downhill spiral at this point. So that was a huge thing for me to be like, oh, wow. But I was looking into some statistics, right? And mm. I I found that the average white family in America, mm. the white family makes on average six times more than a black family and wow. five times more than a Hispanic family. I mean, yeah. I, and it can and it continues to go up. Yeah. Mm. And as a whole, as an entire society, 12 percent of Americans, which doesn't feel like a lot, but 12 percent is is a, a large chunk of our of our society um, because that ends up being 39 million people um, are living below the poverty line. Wow. 39 million people are living below the poverty line and 20% of them are black. Wow. You know, think 10 years from now. If we don't use the wealth that we are obtaining ourselves to redistribute that. Do you know what the... Um, the poverty line is uh, on an annual income basis. I think it's what it, I'm guessing, right? I think it's like what, 40,000 or something like that. 30. 30. Oh, so, wow. For a family yeah. of four, a family yes. of four making $30,000 a year. You know, growing up, Casey, I think we made my family, I think it was like 50, you know, here you give and take. And yeah. that was, we were struggling. Yeah. You know, I come from a lower middle class. Like yeah. we weren't really middle class. We were like lower middle class family. We were struggling. So, I mean, I can only imagine if I had three more sisters or three more brothers, it would have been really, really bad. Really uh, bad. And the $30,000 right now with, with, the, with the direction in which we're going in and inflation is, even though the U.S. Treasury said inflation is down, from mm-hmm. where it was 20 and 2021 or 2022, I think mm-hmm. it's a total lie. They're also saying that there's a millions of jobs being created, except for every other day you hear about <laughs> how millions of people are being laid off. And you see memes of people being like, I have three of those jobs yes. that I created and I still Literally. can't pay rent. Literally. I mean, and if we talk about uh, California specifically, it's estimated that you need at least $80,000 to get by. Rent in California, the new average rent per month mm. went up to $1,800. And that's only for a thousand square foot apartment. It's 27% of a $80,000 income. It's great. I mean, and that's white people, black people, Hispanic people. Yeah, it keeps going up. And I think housing is a human right. I think every individual who wants to be um, housed should mm-hmm. be housed by the federal government and by state government. I think um, California specifically, um, that's one thing I think Newsom could be doing way, way better at. 
I have the statistics on how many people in California are are houseless right now. Well, twelve percent of mm-hmm. the entire United States is is houseless, um, and thirty nine percent of all houseless people are in California. Wow. We we yeah. have the biggest chunk of the biggest of houseless people of people on the streets of all of the country, and we wow. have. Well, I mean, it's California. Yeah. It's one of the most. The, one of the, the wealthiest states in America. In the nation, exactly. Yeah. You Then you talk about, because um, you mentioned it already, like during the Super Bowl, you have so much money that was being sent off to Israel. And oh, so the much. California alone uh, sends $609 million a year to Israel. Yes. At the start, at the start of the slaughter, mm-hmm. um, Gavin went to Israel and, and, and was, had a photo op with Bibi. Oh. And and this is something that is standard because it is in the California Constitution to send money to Israel that people don't really they don't really dig deep. Like this is something unfortunate that I wish more people educated and educated themselves on. It's insane. So my solution, people ask me, so what's your solution and to get around this is to leave America. <laughs> I, if you can just leave america i am casey i'm i'm going to south africa in the next five years damn i yeah because like what you're saying too that five billion that you know that's estimated that would end homelessness in the right. entire world right and how you keep saying like it, every year it, the same thing is happening we send about 3.3 billion dollars to israel every single year so <laughs> we would only have to stop sending money to israel one year one to day. end homelessness and for all of our people. It's uh it's frustrating, right? Uh-huh. It's very frustrating. Yeah. It just boggles my mind that we still want to live here. And that's why for me, I'm not gonna live and die in America. I'm actually gonna I'm gonna go somewhere else because I know that my tax dollars are not gonna go to what's happening. And that's the unfortunately, it's the only way yeah. that my tax dollars won't be going to what's happening. Like, for example, I don't know if you of your or of your listeners heard about this. The 1800s, um, there was a town in America um, and they used to call this place Seneca Village. Have you heard about Seneca oh, Village? Yeah. yeah, when you say that so, name, it sounds super familiar. Right. So, look, so Seneca Village was a huge, huge melting pot in America yeah. where um, many poor whites and who were, you know, in their sufferings um, came to, and also poor free black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was also interracial relationships during the 1800s in Seneca Village. Now, Seneca Village was so prized and inspiration to other um, cities around America that the American government at the time didn't really like seeing that. And they also wanted to compete with France, because France, Paris specifically, they just built this Eiffel Tower. So they wanted to have some type of park or center that America could say, oh, look at us. We have a nice park and we have this center. We have we have tourists coming. Mm-hmm. Seneca Village was placed in New York City. So in the 1800s, they decided to tear down Seneca Village and kick out most of the residents in this thing called eminent domain. And they decided to try to pay residents for the for the land. And then they, you know, they killed some of the black residents. 
They let some of the Irish people go, but they killed most of the black residents on the land because they didn't want to leave their land. And it was their land to start with. They were indigenous to that land. Um, so they ethnically cleansed most of the black people on that land in Seneca Village, and then they turned it into Central Park. Now, now today it's called Central Park in New York City. And this, this is the same cycle of oppression and ethnic cleansing that we see around the world that Amer America is a pioneer of. Um, we're seeing it with our Palestinian brothers and sisters, and we also are seeing it in Sudan. Um, we're seeing it in the Congo uh, when people are being ethnically cleansed and displaced just for cobalt, yep. just for batteries. Yep. Um, so this is something that is a cycle of oppression that we continue to see um, but if we could interconnect these struggles and say, wow, this is something that I did not know. But now that I do know, I'm going to uplift it and I'm going to continue to educate others. Then we can really see more change. I had asked you a question before. That's like, do you feel like we're going to we're going to make change? And you were <laughs> like, no, not really. And I was like, what? What do you yeah. mean? Like, why would you say that? And now, sadly, I already I already get it. I already understand that not not saying like we're not going to do anything or not on our way. There right. isn't any momentum, but like I can just understand. Um, I'm just more realistic about where people are, where we are as a society collectively. What is life going to look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years? And until all of us switch our perception of of the future and, and yeah. change our behaviors and our thought patterns right now, to make effective change for the future, nothing is going to change. It's it's frustrating. And I'm right. so happy at the same time that, you know, we get to connect on this and that we get to put this message out there. And hopefully, you know, a conversation like this, if, even if it changes one person and it gets them to educate themselves, like we've we've done something. But we have to figure out how to have this chain reaction of like, OK, we got some people to wake right. up and start paying attention. How can we keep it going? And it's by continuing to, to educate. Right. I, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, I, I'm so excited for what you were saying because I used to be a robot, Casey. I used to be like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to do this and clock in, clock out and then binge watch a show and be distracted. And then, you know, not pay attention to what was going on. And when somebody calls me in, I get offended, right? That, that used to be me, but yeah. it's not like that anymore. It's more so the situation is becoming even more dire, right? Yeah. So that means that we have to um, educate ourselves, right? Learn that slavery is white history, right? But how we survived mm -hmm. is actual black history. Yes. How we as black people triumphantly came and became doctors, became lawyers, became, you know, Congress people and Senate and senators and business people and um, billionaires like Robert F. Smith, mm -hmm. who is a huge billionaire in uh, America that people don't know about. Right. Do you know yeah. about Robert F. Smith? Nope. He's amazing. And he does so much work in the community. Three years ago, he gave the whole Morehouse class. He paid all of their debt off. No. Nobody even heard about that, right? Like he paid no. every single person's debt off. And these are individuals that I think 
should be more highlighted more that they're not in the American diaspora because we don't want to speak about them. Like Shirley Chisholm, do you know who Shirley Chisholm was? She's the first ever black woman to run for president. First ever black woman, Shirley Chisholm. And that's not taught about. That's not talked about in our, um, you know, whether it be on the movement, social justice, or it's not even talked about in our curriculum, right? Uh, because unfortunately, anti-blackness still runs really deep within the social justice uh, realms, right? Even though yeah. you know, you know me, I, I always want to preach unity. But even when I preach unity, you, you still have some BIPOC folk who are like, I don't know about blackness stuff. <laughs> you know, and so it, it's like it, it's 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 something that we have to work on. Even as black folk, we have to work on how can we, even though. We shouldn't, but how can we make it digestible where we can get these BIPOC liberals and white liberals to come together and really make that change? Um, Because it is a system of oppression that continues to repeat itself if we cannot unite. If white liberals want to say Black Lives Matter, but then turn around and not hire anybody within their corporation that really represents Black people, and how do they matter, right? Yeah. If if if, if Asians want to say that, hey, stop API hate, which I totally agree with, and they get a bill passed, but then they forget about Black people being killed by police or Black people being out on the streets every day, yeah. and they turn the blind eye, then how do we come together and we matter? If, if, if Mexican folks want to say, hey, bro, Black and brown, let's shut it down, but then when we see Black and brown people getting shot, in the in neighborhoods in Los Angeles, and they don't want to speak about putting the guns down and ending gun violence against each other, then how can we come together, right? So these are issues within our own BIPOC communities that we at OCJI highlight. We don't we don't turn away and not talk about it. No, we're gonna talk about it, um, and we're gonna make you uncomfortable to talk about that. And then we're gonna say, now that you know that, let's come together and let's unite and let's educate non-BIPOC hope on how they can come join us in this struggle so we can really have liberation, you know? Yeah, 100%. Uh, What I'm thinking now is that that feeling of being uncomfortable, what happens when you're feeling uncomfortable is you're learning something new. Exactly. Right? You're evolving who you are. Being uncomfortable is a good thing. It means that you're willing to grow. It means that you're willing to change and to learn and you're willing to step out of your comfort zone for someone else's benefit. And that is what we all have to do as a society. We have to start stepping out of our bubble and get uncomfortable so that we can make meaningful change. We have to. Anything else you want to add here for this uh, episode? I would say to your listeners that take the uncomfortability that we have and use it as a conduit toward empowerment, toward education, toward demonstration, consistent demonstration, and toward legislation. Um, This is an election year. So I implore your audience to really research who is in their local community. Um, And if you feel like you don't want to vote, that's okay. Then I also suggest don't spend money at corporations that don't speak on your behalf and place it 
where you feel is going to be the most conducive, whether it be a nonprofit, because that is where the power is, is where, where we put our money and is where we educate each other on. And we can change this nation. And, and quite frankly, we could change this world to where we want it to be. So I really thank you, Casey, and um, your team for having me on again. And uh, hopefully we can continue these conversations offline and um, keep this education going. You know? Please put your money where it matters. Do mm-hmm. not give your money to people that are not speaking up for what you believe in. Now, Justice, it's incredible to to have you back on the show. I, of course, we will be continuing. I actually, I would love to to be involved with helping people get registered and to to help make you know a difference around the community here with you since since we're in the same area. So just yeah, just thank you times a million for for bringing your your voice and your. Uh, your perspective to us, to us here on the show. It's it's, a, it's an honor. Oh, no, thank you so much. And mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to continue this work with you and, mm-hmm. um, you know, free, free Palestine, free and, Palestine. And, and hands off Rafa, um, eyes on Congo, eyes on Sudan. Um, and let's, and let's free all BIPOC people worldwide. So worldwide. Let's, let's keep it going. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, to everyone who listened, if you, Made it all the way to the end of this episode. I'm proud of you. You give yourself a, a round of applause there, a pat on the back. And to everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of this conversation with me and with Justice. If you want to follow Justice online, Justice, where where should they follow you? Yes, um, uh, you can follow um, us at the OC Justice Initiative. Um, you could go to our website, www.ocjusticeinitiative.org. We have different demonstrations that we're hosting throughout the year on there. Um, you can email us if you want to demonstrate with us, if you want to educate with us, or you want to legislate with us. We have Amazing. all our email addresses on there. So please follow us. Yes. Go check them out, everybody. Thanks, everyone, again. This has been the You're an Asset podcast. I'm your host, and I'll see you guys next week. The You're an Asset podcast is not giving financial advice. We are not licensed financial advisors and our licensing is strictly in insurance products. The information that we talk about is specific to the products that we work with. We cannot guarantee that other agents will have the same product features that we discuss on the show.